Is building a successful business a dream of yours? Are you ready to do meaningful work that adds value and drives big profits? Consider joining the Tim Stodd's Entrepreneur Community. Our community is a group of like-minded people who support each other and help each other reach next levels of success in business, career development, and entrepreneurship. You'll gain access to one-on-one coaching, monthly roundtable chats, marketing and business education, and accountability meetings to make sure you follow through on your commitments. It's time you reached your full potential. Learn more at timstods.com forward slash community. That's timstods.com forward slash community. Welcome to Tim Stodds FM, where each week we discuss new ideas and tactics to help you succeed in business, relationships, and life. And now your host, Tim Stoddard. What's up, everyone? My name is Tim Stoddard. Welcome to Tim Stodds FM. Thank you so much for joining me. Before we get started in today's episode, I wanted to extend a quick thank you, a quick moment of gratitude to all the people that signed up for the Tim Stodds community this week. I got more subscribers than I expected to, and I'm thrilled about that. I think it's just another example of doing the work of chipping away at your brand and at your company, of providing something of value, and then over time, finding a way to monetize it. It's going to be great for me. It's going to be great for everybody that signed up. And I'm really, really appreciative of everyone that follows my daily blog posts, that listens to my podcast. I just wanted to say thank you so much to all of you guys. Uh, I, I really, really appreciate you all. All right, let's get into this. My guest today is Seth. Levine. Seth is the co-founder of Foundry Group, a border-based venture firm with almost $2 billion in assets under management. I found Seth through his blog, which is sethlevine.com. And once I started reading some of his work and some of his uh, personal views and ideas about entrepreneurship, about venture capitalism, I became really fascinated. And so I started researching Foundry Group and I love his work. I love his company. Uh, I love all the things that his firm stands for and what they're trying to do to use entrepreneurship as a way to improve society and improve our culture as a whole. It's a really great conversation. As always, I just used it as a way for me to learn. I just thought of all the questions that I always had about how VC works, about how one would go about raising funds and raising capital for a company or an idea that they have. And Seth was was super gracious with his time and with his knowledge. I loved this conversation. I I had a great time talking to Seth. I know that you're going to get a lot of value out of this podcast as well. So please help me welcome Seth Levine. Hey, Seth, thank you so much for joining my, my podcast. I really appreciate you being here. Happy to, Tim. Thanks for having me. Great. So I wanted to jump right in with a topic that uh, isn't directly related to investing and, and venture capitalism, but something that I think you and I share somewhat of a passion for. And that is that uh, I love your blog. You're a really, really great writer. And I, I advocate a lot for people listening to me that you know may be interested in 
starting a business or, or entrepreneurship or even just self-promotion of any kind that one of the most beneficial things you can do is just start a blog and, and start writing. And uh, I think you're like a, a really great example of that. And I, I want to know why you started your blog in the first place. I want to know how it has helped you maybe personally and both uh, for Foundry and, uh, and what it means to you. Yeah. It's a great question, and it, it, there's a long history here. I actually started my blog, I'm going to say it was probably 2005, um, wow. and I started it I started for two reasons. One is um, RSS was a technology protocol that was sort of just getting some attention, yeah. um, and I uh, wanted to play around with it and uh, actually experience technology a little bit, um, and, and so we did that, and it ended up actually leading to a couple investments back at sort of at Mobius, which is the prior firm that I was, I was with before we started Foundry. Um, so that was thing number one. And actually thing number two was I wanted to build my personal brand. I mean, at the time, uh, blogging was very new. I was actually an associate at, at, at Mobius, so at this venture firm. Um, and there were very few people um, blogging. Right? Brad started his blog around that time. Fred Wilson started his blog. But I thought it would be a way to, um, you know, talk about topics I care about. Um, certainly I wanted to try to kind of lift the veil that has, I think, to some extent been, or at least back then had been, kind of surrounding venture capital was a very mysterious thing, and it, I didn't feel like it needed to be, um, having you know been on the inside at that point for four or five years. Um, and I thought it would good way, be a good way to, to um, you know, get, my, get some thoughts out there, get my message out there, and, and build a little bit of a personal brand. And it, you know, it sort of, um, obviously, blogging has taken off since then, and there are a lot of great resources, a lot of really interesting venture capitalists. Uh, writing blogs um, and um, I've just I've kept that up because I really enjoy it it's something that um, I get a lot of sort of personal pleasure out of I, I find it a really good way to organize thoughts and so I um, I've, I've found that uh, the discipline of having to think about what I'm going to write about and I tend to write slightly longer pieces that are less sort of some of them are my opinion pieces but more of them are sort of data driven about current trends where I take, take some data and analyze it in a way that I think is interesting to the audience that follows me. Um, so they tend to be sometimes a little bit longer and, and uh, they take some time to pull together, but I find it's a great way to organize my thoughts about a topic. Yeah, you touched all the things that I talk about because you don't, you don't necessarily use your blog as like a way to monetize, for lack of a better word. There's no ads and at least I haven't seen, you, you may periodically be selling uh products or informational pieces but but you what you're saying the act of the writing is the reward within itself um just getting your thoughts organized being able to you, you can't separate writing from thinking basically and yeah, for exactly. me it's always just been such a great way to build my brand which you mentioned and disciplining myself to where you do something consistently over the course of, of a, a long amount of time. And then you also mentioned RSS, which I thought was funny because uh, when blogging first started, RSS was kind of the rage. And then, you know, things like social media and all these, these big uh, fancy marketing tools took off. And now I think people are getting so sick of this constant content overload that like RSS and just inbound uh, email is it's really kind of coming back because I think people want to have more control over what it is that they want to read and not just constantly be flooded with, with all this information all at once. So I, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to be clear, I don't 
uh, I don't make money on my blog. I, I, I never have uh, sort of had an idea that I would monetize it. Um, and by the way, I left out one really important thing, which is, at least for me, I, it's fun. I like writing. Yeah. I really enjoy it. I, I wish I had more time to write. It's, it's sort of, you know, every year on my, I don't really make resolutions, but in my kind of like, as I think about like, how do I want to prioritize uh, what I do? I actually do that exercise about every six months. Um, writing, writing more is always on that list. I mean, I really enjoy it and I'd, I'd love to. I'd love to have a point in my life where I had more time to write. So I think that's really important. But your point on social media and this overload, it is really, um, I think it's really unfortunate that so much of our, of what we get to read ends up being prioritized by, you know, a robot in the cloud, uh, you know, either in Facebook, um, which I'm not on anymore, so I don't see what they're doing, but, but in Twitter, which I am on quite a bit. Um, and it's, you know, some of it's kind of crowd curated and that piece of it I like where I can see what my friends are reading and what they're posting. Um, and retweeting. Um, but, you know, some of it is also driven by the algorithms, you know, inside of Twitter and, and that, and in particular, uh, driven by the algorithms, algorithms inside of Facebook, which is one of the reasons why I, I left the platform. Yeah. Um, and that's much more problematic. I, I totally agree. I mean, you know, maybe RSS uh, and feed readers and things like that, that, that probably some of your listeners don't even remember uh, being kind of part of the blogosphere as it was as it was called back in the you know 2005 to 2000 maybe 10 time period maybe that'll make a comeback we'll see yeah and and i completely agree i want to definitely get more into um, what i'm excited about with our conversation which is learning a little bit more about uh, venture capitalism and about your group but just one one final note on that i i think you're totally right it's it's about building more of just a one-on-one -on -one connection with the people that want to hear what it is that you have to say, I think the days of people trying to think that you need to have this page with tons of followers and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, it's, it's not about that anymore. It's about finding, maybe it never was about that, to be frank, but it's just about finding your tribe, right? It's about finding that group of people who are into the same things that you're into and, and speaking each other's language and sharing ideas with each other. So I, I just wanted to start off with that because I'm I am a fan of your blog. I've been founding it or I've been reading it since I found it. I loved what you just did about the polar bears. I thought that was so cool. <laughs> um, and I, I'm just a fan. So anyway, let's get into uh, some of the, the more details. You're, you're a founder of Foundry Group, which is a VC firm uh, in Boulder. And what I want to talk about is just the process. Like you said, VC kind of has this air of mystery about it. And as I've, I've kind of dabbed my, my toes into the, the VC land, so to speak, but not enough to where I have any clue on how it works. <laughs> and and I, I don't think that I'm alone in that. So the first question is, is how does the, the VC process start? Do companies actively pitch you do you have people kind of scouting other companies and, and approaching them? If, if I have an idea and I want to get money, what is my first step? Yeah, so there's so different firms do it slightly differently. Foundry doesn't really have like a scout program, if you will, but there are some companies that have uh, sort of scouting associates that, you know, are either in certain markets or going after certain, you know, mm. in certain colleges, let's say, and things like that. Um, that's not how we've approached it at Foundry. We've tried to be really open 
um, uh, both on our personal blogs, obviously relevant to what we just talked about, but also yeah. on the Foundry blog, just about what we're interested in, um, what themes, uh, as we call them, um, are themes that we're actively investing in and why, what types of businesses, what types of founders uh, do we end up getting attracted to. Um, we do that because we want people to do a little bit of self-selecting. One, we want to be open, right, and, and have people know what we're interested in. Uh, two, we've been very careful to be very, you know, very easily accessible. So our, I mean, way back in the day, it used to be that, you know, it was hard to even get an email address for a venture capitalist. They really mm -hmm. tried to kind of control access. And, and our view at Foundry was that, that that doesn't really make any sense. And so, you know, if you go to our website, it's very easy to contact us. You can email us directly. All of our emails are up on the website. And so a lot of people who don't have another way in just send us cold emails and try to engage with us that way. Usually they've done some research and they kind of sort of explain why it is the project that they're working on is, is interesting to them. Um, and of course we get a lot of people that uh, go through some other third party, uh, you know, a lawyer, a business contact, um, some other venture capitalist uh, that they know or, or maybe an earlier investor in their firm um, reaches out to us and, and makes the introduction. So we do, we see things sort of a lot of different ways. You know, I will say, and this is true, I think, for a lot of venture capitalists, we, we see an overwhelming number of potential investment opportunities. Uh, we, we used to actually count it, and eventually it got too hard to count. Um, too, much, too much time was spent in counting. Um, and so the reality is, you know, we see somewhere between eight and 10,000 business opportunities a year, and we invest in approximately uh, eight a year. Eight. Apologize for that noise in the background. They're doing some, I guess. Oh, no problem. That's half the reason why I love doing a podcast because it's, it's, uh, I love when people's <laughs> like kids and dogs and family members just run through the back. <laughs> it cracks me up. Uh, okay. So did you say eight or 80? Eight. Wow. So eight, okay. eight to 10,000 to eight new investment opportunities a year. Yeah. Roughly. So that's fascinating to me because you, you said that there is no shortage of investment opportunities and, do you follow um, Scott Galloway at all? Yes. He's a really hysterical writer, and he, uh, he kind of pokes fun of the big Silicon Valley, you know, charismatic CEO, giant companies. I think WeWork is, is the <laughs> latest victim of his. And when I read that, I get the feeling that, you know, call it, the VC bubble for, for lack of a better word, I get the feeling that a lot of that money is, is starting to be protected. You know, maybe banks and maybe venture capitalist firms are getting a little bit weary of this, um, this new fancy tech startup scene. And from what you tell me, that's, that's not the case. You, you think that there really is a whole lot more opportunity out there. Well, there's a lot of opportunity out there. I will say, I, I wrote a blog post. It's, it's, it was an old one, um, so you might not have come across it yet, but it was, oh, it was probably, I don't know, three or four years ago, and it was, it was titled, I'm Getting Sick of the Bullshit. And, and essentially, it was, a, it was a description of like, start, working on a startup business is hard, and it's real business, and it's serious. Um, and I was getting a little bit sick of the sort of constant like narrative of like, I'm crushing it, or you know, this whole hoodie wearing, party going, like it just, it didn't seem real. Um, and it was, and so I wrote, I got frustrated about it, so I wrote about it. I got a ton of talking about getting feedback. I got a ton of feedback um, from people that it really resonated with. Like there is this sort of Silicon Valley-esque, although it's obviously happening all over the country, 
uh, aura around certain types of businesses or the ways that certain founders are supposed to behave, this sort of cult of personality. We work as emblematic of it, but it's not the only company that kind of has this. Um, mm -hmm. That really doesn't resonate with the vast majority of company founders writ large, let alone the vast majority of comp company founders that are seeking venture capital or, and or are venture or private equity backed. Um, and I think that it is, I'm just surprised when I hear some of these stories, and WeWork's easy to talk about now, it's quite current, um, but just about, about some of the excesses there. And it's, I mean, look, plenty of, of companies in the Foundry portfolio have company parties and things like that. I'm not saying you can't have fun and can't celebrate your wins and things. Um, but, but there's some extreme examples of it in WeWork as one where it feels like it gets out of control. Um, and the excessive partying and drinking sort of becomes the culture. And that's not, that's not a way of celebrating what you do. That, that is what you do to some extent. And I think that, you know, we'll see exactly what happens with WeWork. Um, but, but I think there are stories and companies like that, that I, I think are going to find that the cult of personality um, is going to come up short for them. Um, and the, the culture that they're, they're building is actually going to be antithetical to the business that they're trying to build. It's really refreshing to hear you say that because I think um, I'm 33. So I'm a millennial technically. And it's, it's weird to say this though, but I'm actually getting older to the point where like, I do remember not having an iPhone. I, I remember before Instagram and before you could paint this picture of, you know, I'm a quote entrepreneur. Um, and I'm not saying that that's a bad thing because I, I think entrepreneurship is much bigger than just starting a business. Like all cultural innovation basically comes from, from open markets, you know, like you have to have it and it's, it's important for everybody. Um, but it, it, maybe upsets me is the right word. It's, it's confusing to me and to a lot of people where you just, you see that Instagram ish kind of vibe around starting a company. And, you know, for me, I started my first company when I was a contractor, when I was building houses and I would go to work every day and I would come home from my job and then go do side work. And I, I didn't remember it being like that, you know, like I remember coming home after swinging hammers for like 14 hours for a couple of years before I was able to go out on my own. And it wasn't about that. It was about real relationships with people and like meeting my, my customers and shaking their hands and learning how to price jobs and learning how to manage invoices and learning how to like spec out materials. And it wasn't about how much, uh, hype and money can I raise and then showing off that as if that is a profitable company. It, it's always really confused me and it's really refreshing to hear you kind of reel that back in. One of the, one of the, po another posts that I wrote that, that really resonated is I wrote something called the 10 year entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And I talked about how this narrative of like the instant success and, and companies that, that sort of came out of nowhere and then, you know, were bought for a billion dollars or whatever. It's, it's just a false narrative. Um, and I don't think one, it, it, even when you think it actually is the story of a company, it rarely was right. Usually there's a much longer uh, sort of arc to it than, than it, it sometimes appears. Sure. Um, and, but, but in the rare exceptions where some, someone built a business relatively quickly and it really scaled up and they sold like that's just, that is incredibly uncommon. And I think it does a disservice to 
um, what is sort of the vast majority, the experience of vast majority of entrepreneurs, which is that they, they slog away and then they keep going, they keep going, they keep going. And eventually they, they kind of come up on the right, you know, the right path, the right idea. And, and, you know, I mean, there's lots of companies that, um, start with one idea and run with it for a while and the idea fails and they move into something else, right? I mean, Lyft did not start as a Uber competitor. It started as yeah. a way for college students to share rides home on spring break. Hmm. Uh, Slack didn't start as a collaboration tool. It started as a gaming company. I mean, there's, there's, there's a million examples like that. Um, Twitch, which was Justin TV, didn't start uh, as a, uh, you know, a, a gaming channel. It is, it is so much more common for companies, and maybe those are those are examples of pivots that are a bit more extreme than most companies go through in terms right. of iterating on their business idea. Right. But there are examples of companies that were really ultimately were successful, um, but uh, took a while to even get to the business that that became their business. I love the ten year entrepreneur. It's so funny you say that because I, I just. Um, I'm an SEO more than anything. If, if there's a way that I have built companies, I basically, I'm pretty good at building media websites and just researching keywords and doing that over the long haul. And I, I put a screenshot of my keyword rankings for basically what is my, my first website and also the website that I learned all of my super hard, painful lessons on. And for the keyword rankings, if you just look at it in a, in a graph, like a line graph, the first nine years, the, the organic inbound traffic for that site is basically zero. And then at like eight year, it shoots up, or excuse me, year eight, it shoots up a little bit. And then year nine, year 10, which has been this year, you finally see that J curve. And it's so funny to me where I catch myself writing in my blog and, and so freely giving advice when the reality is the only reason why I know this stuff is because I fell on my face over and over and over again for eight straight years. And it wasn't until you just kind of stumble, I stumbled my way into that sweet spot where I finally figured it out and it started clicking. And I think that's a lot more indicative of what like the typical journey is. Yeah, I, that's exactly right. And I think what you just described is a good example of, you know, the arc that many businesses take. It just takes a while to get going and, um, and it's hard and you change ideas or you modify your product or whatever it is. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, I think that that's, that's an important uh, lesson for entrepreneurs to understand because I think it's, it's hard as you're struggling. And this is what I heard from posting that, that, that blog post. Um, I heard from so many people that, that it's really hard for them to be working away on their business and to believe that, you know, sort of the typical entrepreneur is having this very quick yeah. uh, and very rapid success. And, and, and it was just a good reminder that no, 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 like people really slog it away. And there's lots of successful businesses that are built that take a long time. Um, and I think it was helpful for people to hear that. I think so too. Like I said, I just thought that was really refreshing. Um, yeah. Okay. So let me, let me dive back a little bit more into this process that we talked about. I'm really curious from your standpoint. I've always wondered this, and this is a question that's basically out of my curiosity. If you're vetting a company and you're doing your due diligence, how much do the numbers matter and how much do the people matter? Do you find that it's actually a combination of both? Do you say to yourself, like, I believe in this leader, I believe in this team, and their numbers might not be great, but I believe in them. Do you completely cut the personalities aside and look at it from a, I don't know, call it like a quant standpoint? What, what, 
is that different for every VC firm? Like I've always been so curious as to how that process goes. Well, I will say, I mean, for early stage investors that generally speaking, the numbers aren't as important. Um, so I think the two most, so the cliche is that it's all about team, but I actually think that that's a cliche. Um, team, of course, is very important. You want to work with people that are product obsessed, that are really passionate, that came to this idea in a way that is um, sort of an authentic way because they, they, they're really excited about, you know, on a mission to change some market. Um, so that's clearly important, but that's not the only thing. Um, the, the other thing is sort of product and market, right? And, and so I think that, you know, you want the intersection of those two uh, things to be really strong. You want a team that is, is obsessed, is a team that you are excited about, a team that you're ready to work with for seven to 10 years. Um, that's really, really important. But they also need to be working on a market that you believe in on, and a product, right? They found a, uh, a problem set that's worthy of being solved. And ideally, the intersection between those two things is really strong because the, the team's background led them to find this product uh, or this problem in this market and therefore build this product. I think those are the most important things. The financial is less so, right? I mean, I think that, um, you know, early stage businesses are just taking heavy swags at, at sort of what the, what their financials look like. For, so from that perspective, that's not that important. Now, Foundry does do some growth investing and, you know, at the later stages, companies that are maybe 10 or $20 million in revenue, the financials matter quite a bit, right? And things like unit economics and, and the analysis that we do around that, um, that shifts uh, in terms of its important, importance because you have some history and, and you, have, uh, you have sales models and things like that that you can look at. Um, and, and that becomes a, you know, you're also putting more money in at higher valuations. So it becomes more important to understand uh, the financial uh, stability of the business as well. Yeah. Okay. So I, I heard a couple of things there to, for me to make most sense of it. If it's an upstart, if it's early investing, the financials matter less because you're just taking more of an of a risk on timing and product and and the the future of the market. But if it's a really well established company that's you know maybe a couple years into it, you want to have some obviously some financial backing to know that there's like a proof of concept there. Right. Okay. Yeah, got that's it. exactly right. Got yeah, it. I mean, so the, the the team, the market, and um the team, the market, and the, uh, and the product are most important at the very early stages. Mm. Um, and then those things are still important, but the financials become more important as the company gets, uh, has more numbers to share, basically. So what is your view on timing? Because I think a lot about the, I think a lot about ideas that are just too early, ideas that are too late, and ideas that just for whatever reason come at the very perfect time. Do you, do you consider timing a, a big factor or do you try to analyze it from like a much more quantitative standpoint? Well, I mean, timing of course is important. It really relates to product and market and product market fit. Um, and so, I mean, obviously every, every, everyone who's been in venture for a while has examples of companies that they invested in that just were too early. It was a great idea and it was, uh, it was a few years too early to the market and someone later came, came um, and was able to execute against it. Um, and you know, now sometimes that really was being too early in the market. Sometimes that's a failure of execution. So it's some, it can be hard to differentiate between the two. Um, so we, we certainly, I mean, we consider timing in the sense that, um, we do talk about where the company is sort of on the product market fit continuum and whether we feel like the market is going to evolve in a time period that makes sense in terms of both the company's ability to 
fundraise as well as, um, you know, obviously its ability to, uh, to execute against the market opportunity. Okay. Do you, 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 I'm curious about an example. You said that every VC has an example. Do you have like, off the top of your head an example of that? Tim, I'm sorry. Could you say that again? The Unfortunately, the drilling has started again. <laughs> no problem. I said you mentioned an example where every VC has an example of where something was a great idea, but the timing just wasn't, wasn't right. Can you... Can you think of, of any examples where that was the case in your experience? Oh, sure. I mean, there's a, there's a ton of them. One that comes to mind is we had an early kind of Mechanical Turk-ish type company. This is back in the Mobius days. Um, that was uh, really, I mean, it was a great idea. And it was just, I mean, this is probably back in 2003. And it just was too early in the market. The, the idea of crowdsourcing labor just wasn't, you know, wasn't there. It just wasn't the right sort of time for that market. Um, so that's a, that's an easy example just because it became such a large market overall. And, mm -hmm. you know, the company had the right idea. It just was probably four years too early. Yeah. And so that would be what, like tackle these days. That's the one that I see a lot where you can basically like rent somebody to come in and, and hang a picture frame or something. Well, it wasn't even for physical land. In this case it was virtual. So it was virtual tasks. So, Got it. Um, but it could, I mean, it was a predecessor to things like task, task rabbit, but, but also to mechanical Turk, like, Hey, I need someone to do this thing, go to this website and check this, uh, you know, check if, if uh, it loads in this browser, it, it just, it was a great idea. It was just a bit too early. Very cool. So, so that's great. Um, Coming towards wrapping this up, I wanted to finish a little bit more on the, uh, the themes, as I believe you call them, on, on Foundry Group itself. You guys have a very particular way of um, going about a company that you invest in where you, you build teams around it. And I'm trying to gather as much as I can from the website, so, so please correct me where I'm wrong. But I thought that was really cool because when I, when I personally think of VC, I think of um, Boardrooms, guys with suits, looking at numbers, here's a big check, come back at me when you have a return on investment. And uh, from what I gather on your site, and, and again, please elaborate, uh, you guys are actively involved in, in the growth of the companies that you invest in. So I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, I mean, I think this is true, by the way, Tim, for most, most VCs. Um, which is one of the reasons, by the way, I think it's really important for entrepreneurs to do due diligence on the VC that is or the investor that, that they're looking on taking on board. Um, and so, because they're gonna have this long-term relationship and that investor is gonna be involved in their business. Um, and so, you know, like a lot of other VCs, Foundry is quite active. We, we tend to be the, what's known as the lead investor, which is sort of the most active investor. In our case, it also often, although not always, means the investor with the most dollars invested as well. That's sort of a function of the size of our fund. But the lead investor isn't, is the lead investor because they are the ones that have the trusted relationship with the CEO, more so than they're the one who puts the most money in. So uh, worth differentiating those two things. And, and our goal is to always be that, you know, kind of that first phone call. Work collaboratively with the CEO uh, to run, run the business uh, or, or to have the business be successful. Um, and our view when we get involved with the company is that, you know, when we work for the CEO, um, and so obviously, the CEO ultimately reports to the board and the board can make or does make hiring and firing decisions uh, for the CEO. But, but really um, our role is to help him or her build the successful business as much as possible. And so we really try to uh, try to take on that role of, of we work for you 
Um, and we try to do those things that are most helpful. Um, I actually do an exercise uh, every six months where I go through each of my portfolio companies, the companies that I work with most directly, um, and I outline what I think the business goals are for the overall business, and then I outline what are the two or three things that I think I could be most helpful on. Um, and then I send that to each CEO and make sure we're on the same page. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes the, the two or three things I can be most helpful on is actually one thing, which is to stay out of the way. Um, <laughs> it's not always helpful to have a, you know, have your investor call you and, and say, Hey Tim, how's it going today? What's going <laughs> yeah. on? Um, that's not necessarily helpful. Um, I try to be much more prescriptive around, okay, you know, we have these three or four key hires going, uh, you know, taking place this quarter, let's say, you know, that might be something I could really dig into and help you know, where I manage a search firm, for example, or help uh, do some interviews, or we might have some important product decisions to be making, or we might uh, be embarking on an M&A strategy. And those are things to really dig into and be really helpful on. Um, other times the company is, is sort of running and it's, and they just need a little bit of time. Um, and it doesn't mean that we never talk or that we've not, that we're not paying attention to the business and the numbers, but um, I try to be explicit about that because I, I, there are times in a business when the best thing you can do as an investor is, is to back up a little bit and give the CEO some breathing room so he or she doesn't feel like you are sort of micromanaging the business. Um, it is absolutely the case that boards shouldn't be operating the business. And if boards are making operational level decisions, that's a sign that, that maybe you've got the wrong CEO. Mm. Um, and so I think that that's something that, that sometimes goes awry, especially at earlier companies, because you oftentimes have, um, uh, you know, you have uh, investors that are uh, former, you know, maybe angel investors that are former operators and, and, um, uh, and, and perhaps are more likely to be more involved in the business. And, and that can be okay. I mean, the CEO can get, um, sort of good operational guidance. But at the end of the day, the board doesn't run the business, the CEO runs the business. And if the board has a problem with the way the CEO is running the business, they can suggest other ways to think through problems, but ultimately they can fire that CEO. Um, and, and I think that, that oftentimes boards confuse, I wrote a long series on, uh, board, on board management essentially. And you know, like the number one thing that, that boards get wrong is that they confuse discussion topics with decision topics. And, and the reality is most topics that come up in the board level are discussion topics, not decision topics. Mm. And the person that you've hired to make the decision is the CEO and the management team. Um, so the board can provide input, which is great. And then the CEO and the team needs to go, go away and say, okay, this makes sense. This is the decision that we're making. Um, and I suppose if the board disagrees with enough of those decisions, they can decide to find a new CEO. But at the end of the day, the board's decision level um, is, you know, those, those are only a small handful of sort of really corporate level matters that the board should be actually making the decision on versus just advising the CEO and management team. Wow. So, so cool to hear all of that because what I hear is, like I said, these are just assumptions that people in my position probably have made from I don't know, watching too many TV shows about it. But I, I always picture it a little bit more as a robotic process where you're trying to crack a formula. But from listening to you, it's a much more in-depth, creative, problem-solving process where every single situation, every investment, every company, every person has their own uh, idiosyncrasies about them. And you have to approach each one from you know, a different creative standpoint. And I, and I suppose, and this would probably be like a good place to, to wrap up. I suppose that the, 
the best way to navigate those waters is just through experience. You know, like how many times have you been through these things before and you come across a situation now that may seem like the sky is falling down uh, or excuse me, 10 years ago or 20 years ago, it made it seem like the sky is falling down. And now it's just like, it's another thing to deal with and, and you know how to operate it more smoothly. Well, I think there's a lot of value in that. And I think, you know, one of the things that's important though, as a board member is that you need to be an, enough, you need to have enough self-reflection to, to uh, realize either where sort of markets or situations have changed. And I think that there's a huge amount of benefit to being able to say to a CEO or to fellow board members, hey, you know, we've gone, th- I've gone through this a few times before and here are some things I learned. Um, sometimes you need to be a little bit cautious. I've certainly been in board the poster children for them in terms of the, uh, you know, the returns that they generated, you know, from a handful of years ago. And, yeah. and there is a little bit of a, a sort of potential pitfall that what we're describing, which is that you can rely too much on sort of one or two experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the, the art is finding the right balance there where you inform decisions based on prior experience, but that you also understand how current situations may be a little bit different than, than, um, than, pat, than prior situations. And of course, I always like to use the mantra, um, which I've written about before, which is, you know, the, the, the order of operations is don't panic, get information, make informed decision. And, and the order there really matters, right? And I think good VCs don't panic. They get a bunch of information and then they help provide guidance and, and help either the board or the CEO make, make informed decisions. Um, oftentimes, um, uh, it is not, a, not infrequent that, that some investors or some board members, perhaps with a little less experience, they kind of mix the order up and they forget that middle step. Um, and maybe they panic as well. So I, you know, I think that um, I think it's helpful to have a history because it helps you not panic. It helps you. It helps inform what information you need to then gather to make the decision. Um, but but skipping straight to the third point based on prior experience is the mistake that I'm describing. That I think sure. is really important that people consider. Sure, <laughs> I love that. I'm, I wrote that down in my notebook. I'm I'm going to keep that available to me and 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 probably translate that to, to my team as well. I, I think that's great. So Seth, thank you so much for your time. I, I learned so much just from listening to you in, in this last 40 minutes. I know that the people listening um, are going to have learned a lot from your knowledge and your experience as well. Before we wrap up, uh, please let people know where they can find your blog, where they can find your fund. Um, you know, Maybe if you have a Twitter, give that a shout out as well. Absolutely. Thanks. First of all, Tim, thanks for having me. I thought it was a really fun discussion. I I appreciate it. Uh, You can find my blog at Seth Levine, S-E-T-H-L-E-V-I-N-E.com. You can find Foundry Group at foundrygroup.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Sether. Sether. Okay, great. Um, Once again, Seth, I I really appreciate your time. I hope that uh, you and I can keep in touch. And and one last note, I did read in your blog that you feel like one of the most useful things that people can do uh, to network and get engaged is just continue to like send you emails with cool things that, that they found. So if I see something cool that I think you like, I'm, I'm going to send it to you. I love it. I appreciate that. <laughs> Likewise, man. Um, let's keep in touch. Thank you so much. We'll talk later. Thanks, Tim. Really enjoyed it. See ya. Hey guys, it's me. It's Tim. One last time before we wrap up, just wanted to say thank you for tuning into the podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes. Please leave me an honest rating. Please follow me on Spotify. It's the best thing you can do to support the show. If you want to find out more, go to timstods.com. Feel free to fill out the contact form to reach out to me personally. I always respond. I appreciate you guys so much. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Have a good one.